This week, Regal seeks summary judgment that obligations under Exhibitor Service Agreement terminated. Court of Appeals dismisses LTL Chapter 11 filing and major blow to Texas two-step strategy. PGM Regional Transmission Organization discloses potential penalties to merchant power generators. Reorg publishes Serta Simmons' analysis. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield distress debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. For this week's Deep Tab, we feature a replay from the Reorg Primary Review Series, where John Hennis, co-founder and CEO of C Street Advisory, discusses cryptocurrency bankruptcies and looming regulation within the industry with Reorg reporter Ellen Schneider. It's Friday, February 3rd. Wednesday, Cineworld Group debtor Regal Cinemas Inc. moved for summary judgment in the adversary proceeding filed last October by National City Media LLC. NCM seeks to enforce its exclusivity, non-competition, non-negotiation, confidentiality rights under the party's Exhibitor Services Agreement, or ESA, which the debtors have indicated they will reject unless the deal is renegotiated. Through the summary judgment motion, Regal seeks a determination that rejection of the ESA would relieve it of any further performance obligations under the contract. Regal also argues that NCM's sole remedy upon rejection would be to assert an unsecured rejection damages claim in the bankruptcy cases. At a status conference on Thursday, Bill Arnault of Kirkland Ellis, counsel for the Cineworld Group debtor, said the summary judgment motion was filed to clear a key gating issue of whether the contract provisions are enforceable post-rejection. Despite the continued litigation efforts, Arnault said the debtors are still in negotiations over a new contract with NCM. On Monday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit directed the lower courts to dismiss LTL management's Chapter 11 case as a bad faith filing, a crucial decision rebuking the Texas two-step strategy used by companies seeking to manage mass tort liabilities. At the heart of the opinion is the court's finding that LTL was not in financial distress when it entered Chapter 11. Although LTL inherited billions in tout claims from Texas divisional merger predecessor Old Johnson & Johnson Consumer Inc. prior to the petition date, the panel points to LTL's $61.5 billion funding agreement with parent Johnson & Johnson, describing it as not unlike an ATM disguised as a contract. The panel concluded that LTL's funding backstop mitigated any financial distress as the bankruptcy petition date, thereby disqualifying it from Chapter 11 protection. The court stopped short, however, of blanket rejection of the Texas two-step strategy, maintaining a laser-like focus on the financial distress requirement. Writing for the majority, Judge Thomas L. Ambrose said that while some could argue that any so-called divisional merger meant to excise the liability and stigma of a product gone bad contradicts the principles and purposes of the bankruptcy code, that finding, quote, awaits another day and another case. The opinion is a litigation victory for top claimants who appealed key rulings from bankruptcy judge Michael Kaplan in February 2022. Judge Kaplan denied the claimant's motions, dismissed the case as a bad faith filing, and imposed a preliminary injunction shielding non-debtor affiliates, including Johnson & Johnson, from talc litigation. The Third Circuit notes that dismissal of the cases annuls the litigation stay on the debtor's affiliates and makes moot the need to decide that issue. Several merchant power generators with operations in the PGM Regional Transmission Organization disclosed to lenders on February 2nd that they may be subject to penalties of up to $50 million by the Regional Transmission Organization because of outages at the Lightstone Generation-owned Lawrenceburg, Indiana, and Waterford, New York plants during Winter Storm Elliott in December 2022. Nautilus Generation may face a fine of up to $51 million, while Edgewater Generation's fine may be up to $35 million, sources said. PGM is expected to make a final determination around Friday, February 10th. Storm-related outages and associated fines may have contributed to PGM-generated Heritage Power's decision to file for Chapter 11 on January 25th. 
Winter Storm Elliott affected PGM's northeast and mid-Atlantic region from December 23rd to 25th, according to the system operator's website. PGM implemented emergency procedures on December 23rd and 24th, during which operators were subject to performance assessment interval calculations. Gas-fired plants were particularly affected by the storm, with Lightstone's Lawrenceburg and Waterford plants both experiencing outages over the December 23rd to 25th period, making them subject to penalties associated with emergency procedures. This week, REARG published an Excel analysis of Sirtis Simmons' exit value based on several potential outcomes. Under the existing plan construct, Sirtis' first lien, second out loans trading price values the reorganized company at approximately $700 million, depending on exit costs and equity allocated to management. Likely due to the potential of a more favorable outcome from ongoing litigation over Sirtis' 2020 up-tier exchange transaction, the trading price, according to solid advisors, of the first lien non-priority term loans value the company significantly higher. Treatment for each of the major claims is discussed in Reorg's analysis and accompanying spreadsheet, which allows users to toggle between acceptance and rejection for non-PTL lenders. To access Reorg's full in-depth analysis of Serta Simmons, please reach out to a Reorg representative. Top red stories this week included, Incora Wesco up-tier exchange defendants say transaction complied with indentures allege hypocrisy in non-participating lenders' phantom votes argument, Exclaim no longer pursuing appeal of Judge Lane's decision on retention of Epic as claims agent. Fifth Circuit denies Just Energy petition for rehearing on Bonk of ERCOT dispute abstention decision. Litigation coverage. Aldrich Pump case party select co-mediators. Now here's Kate Thomas from New York with the week ahead. Hi, this is Kate Thomas coming to you on this Wednesday, Friday with next week's lineup of hearings. Starting on Monday, the Celsius Network debtors have an evidentiary hearing on the scope of their account holders' recourse rights. The Debtors and Official Unsecured Creditors Committee claim that under the Celsius Terms of Use, account holders have recourse rights against all debtor entities, whereas the Series B preferred shareholders claim that account holders only have recourse rights against certain debtor entities. Also on Monday, the FDX Group debtors will try to fend off the U.S. Trustee's motion to appoint an independent examiner. The U.S. trustee argues that these cases are, quote, exactly the kind of cases that require, unquote, an independent examiner to investigate the debtor's, quote, extraordinary collapse. The debtors and official unsecured creditors committee, however, object that an examiner would impose large, unnecessary costs on the debtor's estates and would only duplicate several investigations that are already underway. Genesis Global is also scheduled to hold its status conference on Monday, adjourned from last week, to discuss a potential mediation with corporate parent Digital Currency Group and other lenders. As detailed in their first-day papers, the debtors commenced their Chapter 11 cases with a goal of reaching a consensual resolution among these parties through a court-supervised process. An emergency status conference requested by debtor Honix, its parent Hess, the Official Unsecured Creditors Committee, and counsel to certain asbestos claimants is also scheduled for Monday. According to the joint stipulation filed by the parties on Friday, the parties have reached an agreement in principle regarding various plan-related issues, including the debtor's stated, quote, intention of seeking to confirm a Chapter 11 plan that includes a Section 524G trust and the existing asbestos claims, unquote. The stipulation does not provide further details regarding the terms of this agreement. Next up, on Tuesday, the reverse mortgage debtors will seek final dip approval at their second day hearing, which was rescheduled last week. 
the debtors say that go-forward financing is essential to avoid an immediate conversion of their Chapter 11 cases and that they continue to work with former dip lender Hall, the Unsecured Creditors Committee, and parent BNGL Holdings over the direction of their Chapter 11 cases to resolve remaining critical issues. The former brand's debtors will also have their second-day hearing, but on Wednesday, where their $33 million senior-secured multi-draw term loan dip facility is up for final approval. Also on the agenda are the proposed bid procedures in connection with a 363 sale of substantially all their assets, as well as a settlement agreement with Ariana Grande-affiliated entities. The FTX group debtors returned to court Wednesday on their joint motion with the official Unsecured Creditors Committee for for authority to conduct discovery on certain insiders who are key executives and senior advisors to the debtors, including Sam Bankman-Fried, Gary Wang, Nishad Singh, and Carolyn Ellison. After last week's hearing on the dissenting 2016 term lenders suit to nullify the 2020 Brand Co. priming transaction, the Revlon debtors will be back in court on Wednesday. This week, however, the debtors are seeking approval of their planned disclosure statement and backstop commitment agreements with the Brand Co. lenders for the exit financing contemplated under their plan as well as an extension of the planned exclusivity period through May 9, 2023. The term lenders have objected to all the requested relief, arguing, among other things, that the disclosure statement should not be approved because the plan is, quote, premised on an impermissible classification scheme, unquote, and unconfirmable, and approval of the backstop for resolution of the brand co-transactions lawsuit threatens a windfall for the brand co-lenders if the term lenders ultimately prevail. That's it from me. Now back to you, David. For this week's Deep Dive, we feature a replay from the Rear Primary Review series, where John Hennis, co-founder and CEO of C Street Advisory, discusses cryptocurrency bankruptcies and looming re- regulation within the industry with Rear reporter Ellen Schneider. So good morning and welcome to the Primary View from Reorg, which features incisive interviews and insight on issues affecting and impacting distressed debt, leveraged finance, direct lending, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, private equity, middle market, and private debt. I'm Ellen Schneider, and in this week's episode of The Primary View, John Hennis, co-founder and chief executive officer of C Street Advisory Group, um, is with us today. John was a bankruptcy and restructuring lawyer for 25 years, and C Street is a strategy and communications firm. John, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So as of late, you know, obviously FTX has been dominating the news and everyone's been keeping a really close eye on what's likely to happen next in the world of crypto. So on that note, I was hoping to discuss um, how these companies have been sort of intimately and ultimately sort of detrimentally intertwined with one another. So do you see more stressed opportunities in crypto beyond exposure to FTX or other ongoing bankruptcies? Yeah, I think we'll definitely see more stress um, in in the crypto world. Um, you know, I think when you think about crypto, uh, there's a few things to think about. One is, you know, it, it's new, right? Um, meaning, you know, crypto kind of came up, you know, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, people got really excited about it, or some people got really excited about it. Uh, and it was it's basically a whole new industry that got created, right? So you have the cryptocurrencies themselves, and people look at that, um, and people like the decentralization of it. 
but what is really a cryptocurrency and what's the real value of a cryptocurrency? And at the end of the day, really the cryptocurrency, it's really scarcity and it's trust. Um, so you have those two things. But now that you have crypto, right? Well, to make crypto, what do you need to do, right? So you have mining companies. So mining companies are using all this computing power to do these mathematical calculations, to create unique cryptocurrencies. Um, and then you're not going to, most people aren't going to hold cryptocurrencies themselves. So you need some place to either deposit it, some sort of an exchange. People want to trade it. So you're going to trade it. So you have all these different companies that are popping up. You had all these different crypto com um, currencies popping up. And when things happen like that, it's almost like the dot-com boom, right? People get really excited and, and about it. Um, but then when that trust goes away, and, and now what we have with social media, and we saw with Twitter and Reddit, how much trust and how much, um, whether it's rumors or reality, can cause the, the price of crypto to be so volatile. And when people get scared, they have a run on the bank. So as I kind of look at this, as it plays out and it becomes a more mature industry, um, we're going to see more stress. Um, I don't think the the what we saw with FTX right looks like it was just a pure and utter you know fraud from almost day one. Um, and I think a lot of these other companies they're definitely not that, um, right. but they impacted by the you know well what does it mean if you have your assets tied up with ftx right if i have crypto and it's on your exchange and you're tied up with ftx do i want to get my crypto back and if i start pulling my crypto back what happens so as we're looking through all of those different things and i'm being quick because i know we don't have so much time <laughs> um i think we will definitely see more stress in the crypto world um and uh you know and, and that's going to be i think that, that means there could be an opportunity for some companies maybe even some companies that are in chapter 11 today that could emerge stronger um, as they see the mistakes of the past and understand where they should go in the future. I think other companies, you know, we're going to see uh, issues with, we may see some more frauds. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot out there left to be seen. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of, you know, mistakes that have been made, I'm curious what you think, um, why do you think these companies decided to lend to one another rather than securing maybe traditional avenues of financing? Well, I'm not sure it was a total choice. You know, I think that there's a few things. Right? When you think about traditional lines of financing, right, especially, um, you know, loans, whether they're secured or unsecured, right? So secured loans being uh, making a loan and I'm actually securing that against an asset or an unsecured loan where, it's not secured against an asset, but I can look at a company and how the company operates and what the value, I believe the value of that company is compared to where I'm putting the loan in and my chances of getting that repaid. Um, and as a result of that, can structure the loan in a certain way. I think it was it's it's hard to do that with crypto, right? Because as you're looking at crypto, if you're a traditional lender, for instance, you sit there and you say, okay, well, what's the value of this company? And if the company's value is based on the value of the crypto, well, what's that crypto's value? Because the crypto doesn't have any asset underlying it. It doesn't have operations underlying it. So, right. so that makes it a very hard asset to loan against, right? Or to make a traditional investment against it. Um, and then second, you just have the, the crypto world, right? Of decentralization and not wanting to be part of the traditional world. Um, and so, you know, as as these companies were loaning to each other, I mean, you look at FTX specifically, 
right? FTX going in and, and making loans to companies or investments to companies, but then there was nothing behind FTX to support any of that. So it just dragged other companies down. Right. So I think that I think some of the the going the back and forth was either necessity or in an FTX case, just a fraud. Um, but I think it's hard to find traditional financing until you have uh, a system in place that that's secure, right? That people feel okay about, that people know how to value and know that it's not just going to be a bunch of noise in Twitter land that could take a company down, but that there's real, there's something real behind the companies that they're loaning to or making an investment to. Absolutely. That makes sense. And so this might not be a great question because as you said, some of that lending to one another may have been necessary, but you know, do you think it would be possible that some of these bankruptcy filings that we've seen lately could have been maybe staved off if um, there was an effort to secure traditional avenues of financing rather than relying on one another? So I'll answer it this way. I think that if you had a company that um, was a solid company, let, let's take an exchange. Let's, let's say you had a company where you, you could deposit your crypto and you knew that your crypto was going to be on that platform, wasn't going to leave that platform. Mm -hmm. you, you had a lot of security that, you know, a lot of faith and trust that if you wanted to get your crypto back, it would be there. And now I'm a traditional investor, lender, and I look at that company and say, okay, based on everything that that company's doing, I have real faith that it's, it's working well. They're not gonna have a run on the bank. The company's not just gonna turn into, you know, nothing in value being destroyed overnight, maybe I would invest in that company. And if I did, would that stave off a bankruptcy? It could, right? I mean, obviously, a lot of a lot of companies that have traditional lending in place end up going into bankruptcy anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> but but they're but traditional lenders are going to do different types of diligence than, you know, they're going to do a lot of diligence to check the company and make sure that the company is is sound, at least when they've made the investment, they'll believe it's sound. Mm -hmm. um, so could that stave off some bankruptcies? It could. And, and if crypto remains a real big business over the long term, and if it gets, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit, but if it gets regulated and people start to have trust in it, you know, I would think then you would at some point find traditional lenders that will step in. Absolutely. So, I mean, thinking about that, uh, as this industry matures down the line and maybe has some of that traditional backing, um, does that mean crypto is no longer decentralized? Well, it depends on how you define decentralized, right? So if it's decentralized, that it's not backed by, you know, a foreign government um, and, you know, the, the, the knowing that then, then it could be stay decentralized because it's never going to be backed by a foreign government. Mm -hmm. um, that's the whole, you know, one of the whole thing, purposes of, of crypto. Um, if you mean decentralized, that it's somehow going to be outside of the everyday, you know, traditional or normal world. Right. I don't, that there's no way that's going to happen. Um, it is going to get subsumed. But I think that's an important, I, I think an interesting thing, you know, when I, um, when I was uh, a young lawyer, I left to uh, start a, uh, um, a firm during the dot-com boom. And mine was more of an advisory and software firm. Um, and I, there was Ace Greenberg, if you remember that name, he ran Bear Stearns. 
his um, wife was uh, on the board of my law school. And when I was young, I met her because I did a presentation for the board and she really just was incredibly generous with her time and advice and her network with me. And, wh- and when I was leaving to start my business, she sat me down with Ace and said, you should talk to Ace. And I said to him, you know, I'm so excited about this opportunity. I'm going to start this company and we live in this new economy. And he stopped me and he said, what do you mean new economy? And I said, the new economy, you know, the internet and all this. And he said, he said, John, there's no such thing as a new economy. The economy is always the same. He said, what you're telling me is that you think the, in- the internet is a new way to sell a product. Okay. So if I want to buy a book, I can go to a bookstore or I can buy it on the internet. All you're telling me is it's two different ways to go buy something. That's not a new economy, right? You still need to have that book, right? And the book is what you're buying, right? And now maybe there's a better means of selling it, that I'll admit, but it's still the book. And when I think about crypto, like we we still live in a world. We live in a world where people want to know that what they're buying has something behind it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so with, with currency, what is it now? Well, currency outside of cryptocurrency, you know, you buy, you have a dollar, it's backed by the U.S. government. You can take that dollar, right? Well, maybe you have five dollars. You can go buy a, a Starbucks coffee, and you get something that is worth that to you. So, crypto at some point is going to have to um, have that. It's going to have to be part of the regular economy, I think, for it to have real, true, long-lasting value. Absolutely, and you know, part of bringing that into the space is regulation and enforcement, right? Which we've had a lot of talk about recently as well. I mean, what do you think regulation in this space looks like? Well, I think, so So there's a few things um, when I think about this. You know, one is there's there there's going to be regulation on the exchanges, right? You, you need to have that. And you do have that already in the U.S. to a certain extent, right? The FTX you know, U.S. exchange didn't go into bankruptcy because there is regulation around that. Um, but you're going to have to have it around the exchanges and you're going to have to have real you know, information that these exchanges are providing, make sure that they're safe, because as we saw with FTX and a lot of the other um, crypto companies that have either gone out of business or filed for bankruptcy, you have a lot of these retail investors, a lot of these individuals that or putting their money in and then losing their money, um, which you know the government is going to want to protect them, right? That's what governments do. Um, so I think you'll have it around that. I think also, you know, there's going to have to be regulation just around kind of the currencies themselves, making sure that they, you know, that they are safe. And so I, I kind of look at it, you know, as we'll probably have some sort of, you know. Um, we're going to have to have some sort of unified regulation around it where there's real information being provided to the government and for everyone to see with transparency, making sure there's reserves, making sure people are protected. Um, I do think, though, one thing that we probably won't see, um, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think we'll see any kind of like FDIC insurance um, Mm -hmm. because this is decentralized currencies, not backed by the government. Um, I don't see the government stepping in to protect people for that. Um, I see it much more as kind of securities regulation and currency regulation. Absolutely. And that makes sense. And, you know, in that same vein of preserving the decentralization of cryptocurrency, um, you know, some people have pushed back against regulation altogether, stating that 
crypto would no longer be decentralized if it were properly regulated. So, I mean, how do we grapple with this dichotomy, you know, this need for regulation to protect consumers and those same consumers, some of them resisting that regulation, you know, in the interest of remaining decentral? Yeah, again, the whole... I'm maybe this is just me getting older, right? I bet you when I started my uh, my my business during the dot com boom, I probably wouldn't have thought like this. But um, maybe after just working and 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 seeing so many industries and and companies um, have issues, the whole decentralization thing to me is. I think there's I think there is there are people who really believe that. I think at the end of the day, people want to make money. Um, people want to be able to, you know, afford the things they want to afford. They want to be able to take care of their kids and put food on the table. And I think that that if what decentralization means is what we've been seeing, that can't last, right? It can't last because the people who are going to start the companies are going to realize that the only way for them to make money, which is why they're going into these businesses, is to follow rules that are going to be made. Now they can be part of that, right? So. You know, these the, the big crypto companies can get together with the government to help formulate the right regulations that work for the crypto industry and protect, you know, the the everyday person who's who's investing in crypto or investing in these companies. Um, but at the end of the day, they, that's why the whole to me, the whole decentralization is seems to me more of a, a theory than a reality. Mm. Um and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe it's just because I, I've gotten older. Interesting. Okay. Um, I mean, it also seems there's the potential for this to sort of be a turnoff to certain investors, but I mean, could it also be a boon for the sector, do you think? Just because people might feel, like you said, a little bit safer in investing in this area. Yeah, I I, I think that it, I think that overregulation is is not good. I think, though, we do need to have rules um, and we need people to follow those rules. And um, I think that if there are rules that 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 make people more comfortable, investors, you know, owners of crypto, then it will be good for the industry. I think that if we don't have those rules, um, you know, what we'll see, we'll see more FTXs, although I'm not sure rules would have stopped SBF from doing it. <laughs> seems like he did. Um but I do think that other companies, you know, if, if we had rules, probably wouldn't be in the situation they're in today. Um, they probably wouldn't be able to uh, grow as fast, at least ephemerally. Um, mm -hmm. Right. I remember, I mean, I'm sorry to give another story, but when I started my company, <laughs> one of the things I'll remember is uh, one of my board members was a very, very senior lawyer at a very large firm named partner. And he Again, it was somebody else who I felt very fortunate to know who kind of took me under his wing. And I was just about to, I had just raised my money. I was just about to launch the company. And I said to him, so how long do you think before we go public? And he said, I don't know, 12 to 18 months. Okay. Now I think back to that now, like 30, whatever years ago. I mean, the, I didn't even have a, not only did I have a company, it wasn't even that great of an idea. It was right. And like, it definitely wasn't a company that should have gone public. Maybe it could have made some money, but, but he was thinking that too. Right. And it was because we were in the moment, right. Once the moment ended, which by the way, when I raised my money, I, I closed my financing two days after the NASDAQ crashed. So it was like, could it not have been the worst timing, although a great experience. Um, 
but it wasn't until we looked back to be like, wow, we were crazy, right? Like we thought like this whole world was different and it's not. And I think that's where we are today. We're not in a different world, right? We are in the same world that the economy and finance has the underpinnings that matter. And some of that is regulation. And some of that is that companies have real operations and that there's real value to whatever a company is you know, selling. Um, so those things don't go away. And, but, you know, every once in a while we hit kind of a period of time where we think it does. Um, and I think that happened here, happened here. And I think we'll see, we'll see a change. And some of these companies will um, come out stronger and some will go away forever. Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, well, that's pretty much all I had for you. Is there anything else about this that you wanted to add? Uh, no, I mean, there's so there's there's so much more, but um, so much more to come. Uh, but I think that um, now I think this was great. And I really appreciate you having me on. And uh, and I love all that you and Rurik do. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you again for joining us, John. We really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for listening to today's Reorg Primary View. Join us for our upcoming webinars. On February 8th, Reorg Senior Legal Analysts will discuss European and leveraged finance trends, how covenants evolved in 2022. And on February 13th, Reorg's Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland, along with Kirkland Analysis' Josh Sussberg, will review chapter 11 filings and trends over 2022 in a conversation hosted by the American Bankruptcy Institute, John Hartkin. Register now at reorg.com or email marketing at reorg.com for further information. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.